You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Tim Hines hosts a great podcast called the Marketing Starter Podcast. Tim, tell these fine folks what they're going to get when they listen. They're going to get great insights on how marketers can take an entrepreneurial attitude to what they do in marketing to be a little bit more successful. So I interview top marketers from all around the world and heck, even some that are bottom and middle. It's really about marketers who embody the entrepreneurial spirit to be the best that they can be. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? They can, of course, subscribe on marketingpodcast.net, but they can also search for the show on all their favorite podcasting platforms, as well as visiting my website, which is tnhines.com slash podcast. You heard him. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone, you are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Cassell. I'm joined today by Janelle Johnson. She is an LMFT outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, group practice owner. And today we are going to talk about creating an anti-ableist practice. And Janelle, I really appreciate you having uh, making the time and coming on here to have this conversation. It's an important one for sure. And thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Glad to actually um, spend some time talking with you. I've known you for a long time and I know you're a fellow Lord of the Rings enthusiast, but uh, saying, um, yeah, I'm super excited to be here and talk with, with your folks about this today. I'm excited too, but now that you mentioned that, my brain's going to diverge, and I feel like we could just have this podcast about Lord of the Rings and and oh yeah, we could. Tennessee. I actually just booked a two week uh, Lord of the Rings tour in New Zealand for December um, that my wife is gladly not coming on. So, oh, you have to tell me all about it because I'm looking. That's going to be one of my uh, one of my graduation gifts to myself. I I got to do this. If, but my husband would never, he would have to come. We're both ridiculous enthusiasts. So yeah, my wife was like, if you want to go, go. I am not coming with you on that. Uh, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> I don't blame you. All right, fair enough. But I will, I'll send you the link when we get off of here. Okay. Uh, okay. So today we are talking about how to create and foster and grow a anti-ableist practice. And you suggested this topic. So anytime I have people suggest something that they feel really passionate about, I kind of want to get an understanding as to what what fuels the fire, what makes this feel like a really important topic for you. So take it away. Well, when I originally entered the mental health field, um, I didn't have ability or disability specifically on my mind. I was, like most of us, I was concerned with things that were going on in my family and in my community and, and around me. Um, and the way that manifested in trauma, um, um, family issues, um, and neurodivergence that wasn't diagnosed and, you know, all kind of cool things. So I didn't really like connect it to ability specifically. Um, that journey has really developed just over the past, maybe seven or eight years since I've become a parent. Um, and I've started to do the work to, um, address my own internalized ableism, um, center my, um, my my identity uh, development around disability that had not been fostered before, um, and and then eventually, you know, the work that I'm doing in my doctorate now, I'm doing educational equity with a focus on disability 
Um, so it's just been a culmination of kind of just seeing things for what they are. And my my refrain that I've been carrying around the mental health field for the last three or four years is that every mental health professional is a disability advocate. Um, and so that's kind of where that where that journey has uh, come from. That's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So recognizing, I, I like that you're naming like my own internalized ableism because I myself have talked about this on my other podcast with Megan uh, Neff about when being diagnosed late in life with autism, ADHD, like there's still a lot of internalized ableism to unpack even as someone who identifies as part of that community. So that's something I think that's really important to note that Janelle just mentioned, because for a lot of us helpers, we do have these biases. We do have these reactions to things. We have these ways that we've been conditioned through society to react to certain labels and diagnoses and, and struggle areas. So that's really, really important. I just want to highlight that. And then it sounds like just really operating from a different lens now and a different perspective and seeing the world from a different uh, vantage point too. So it's informing basically everything that you're doing. It sounds like parenting, identity work, your group practice ownership, your education. So it sounds like a culmination of a lot of intentionality behind what you're, you're trying to do in this world. Definitely. I think intentionality is the right word. It's uh, an in culmination. It's um it's really finding that there's this underlying thing that nobody's talking about uh, or very few people are talking about, uh, especially in mental health. I don't know why we don't hear more about disability and ableism and anti-ableism, um, given the work that we do. Um, and um, every time that I go do a talk um, on this topic, the first thing, one of the first things that I remind people is that if you are giving someone a diagnosis, you are introducing them to the disability community. Yes. Yes. That is so important to, to highlight because once that diagnosis is attached, right, there is now a different differentiation and interpretation of my own vantage point on myself, my my thought processes on my ability to function or not function, to need accommodation, all of a sudden it starts to stir up a lot of um, emotion around how did I never see this? How come mm -hmm. I wasn't aware? How come my family wasn't aware? What did I miss? What did I do wrong? There's a lot of shamefulness that comes up with that process as well. Yes. And we don't recognize that the shame is the connection to the ableism, that if we didn't have ableism, there wouldn't be shame. Right. It, 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 it's not a shameful thing. There's nothing there's nothing inherently wrong with um, with having a, a major depression disorder or or an ADHD or uh, um, or an anxiety diagnosis. There's inherently there's nothing wrong with it. It's the ableism that is the undercurrent of our society that drives um, a lot of the things that we have to process whenever we do get a diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. We are living in an ableist society. So anything that is less than typical starts to create this situation where we are looked at or inherently looked at as being different or flawed. But in reality, it's really just a byproduct of the society that we live in, the culture that we experience, the expectations, the ways that things are set up or not set up to be accommodating or supportive. 
Right. And then people trying to overfunction or trying really hard to push beyond their capacity and executive functioning in general to be able to just participate in everyday life. That part, it's, it's, um, <laughs> there's been a lot of instances with clients that I've worked with where, and, and this is particularly a challenge in um, black and brown communities, which is probably 60% of my, 60% um, of the clients at, at my practice are, are black and brown, because that's one of our specialties is that um, is people of color. But one of the challenges that we face in communities of color is also uh, um, beginning to embrace this um, this disability um, moniker and, and that there's been so many challenges with just showing up as black, just showing up as brown. Then you want me to add this other thing on on top of it. Like, I don't have space. I don't have the room. I can't process that. Um, especially in this climate, in the social climate that we're in now post, uh, post-Trump. So um, it's a lot to ask of people um, if you're thinking from an intersectional place of understanding how everything overlaps, all of our different identities overlap and compound um, oppression. It's a lot to ask of someone if they're black or brown to, to add a diagnosis on top of that. Um, and those are things that um, I help organizations and practices start to sort through um, as far as making sure that they're, that our therapists and our um, clinicians and our staff are prepared to support people effectively and in a culturally sensitive way um, when they're thinking about just the idea of giving folks diagnoses. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful uh, statement to process. So not only is there a lot of power differentiation in the ability to, to diagnose someone with something that's attached to them for the rest of their lives, but what you're talking about is people of color who are already marginalized, who already are feeling like other or distant or disconnected or not supported to then add an additional layer of complexity here to further kind of create this narrative of dysfunctional or broken or not as adequate or as good or competent. As you start to th think about the stigmatization that comes with mental health diagnoses in our society. Definitely. And, um, and stigma makes it sound so good, right? Like <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the words that I'm not a huge fan of is stigma. Like um, it's still discrimination. It's still oppression. It's just like another lighter, we give it a lighter word when it's in the mental health field, um, when we're talking about race, for instance, or whatever. But then we, we, then we, get desensitized to the the very real damage, the very real trauma, um, the the mental and physical health um, disparities, all the things that come out of that um, out of that word uh, stigma. Um, I don't know. I got on a tangent there. No, tangents are good and, and they're <laughs> uh, they're encouraged on this podcast anytime your brain diverges. So I think you're right. And I think that there is this ability to kind of say, if we're, you know, if, if this is stigmatized, we're, we're really desensitizing this word, right? And it's a buzzword in the mental health community, for sure, to say like the stigma of mental health, but we're not really actually examining what is creating the propensity and the increased 
um, connection and correlation to more pervasive mental health struggles and conditions in marginalized communities and the inequities that are mm-hmm. faced, socioeconomic challenges and institutionalized racism and all the things that incorp- that create trauma and depression and anxiety, et cetera. And then if we're kind of using this ableist lens to view how people are showing up and functioning in society and, and how they're able to work or not work or what they're able to participate in, it really does create further divide and it creates further and increased discrimination. It does. And, and, and the damage that, that the damage of that is far reaching. Um, It's far reaching because the overwhelming majority of us as therapists, we came into this work wanting to help others, wanting to, uh, to put good into the world and to know that, and to, to not know that our gaps in knowledge are actually perpetuating harm and perpetuating trauma. Um, You know, that, that gap in knowledge is something that we, we can't afford. Um, We as therapists can't afford and um, the community um, at large can't afford uh, because I don't know, I, I take a lot of, I think our, our work as therapists is um, it's unique and there aren't a lot of other people in the world who can fill this space. Uh, so um, I liken it to uh, The Giver. The Giver is one of my favorite books. Uh, love that book. Had no idea I was going to be a therapist later in life when I fell in love with the book as a kid. But, um, you know, there's this there's this one person. There's this one, one person who could be The Giver. Um, the person who's being trained is the receiver, but there's this one person who's going to carry all the weight and all the stressors and all the memories of this entire community. Like that's what therapists are for the world. Like we carry, we carry this deep, intimate con- connection with, with our humanity um, that other people don't have to walk around with. And so knowing that you have this responsibility and this skill set and this training and how powerful it is. Um, you know, what are we doing with that? How are we managing that responsibly um, with respect to ableism and everything else? But with respect, with respect to ableism, are we being a part of the, the, are we being part of the talk that's just kind of moving and keeping ableism going? Because honestly, yeah, kind of like the way that the way the mental health structures are set up now. Yeah, we are part of part of the problem. Um, the APA um, in 2021, they posted an apology to um, to the Black and Brown communities about um, their role in perpetuating racism, right? And we've seen similar apologies from some of the other um, license types. But um, the APA, in, in their apology, they were the, the most thorough. Um, and I really liked how they talked about how... Um, they they aligned how even diagnoses like drapetomania, um, like there were things that the, the system that was built was created to perpetuate, you know, racism. Um, if there's no ableism, is there mental health? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, there's, the, if 
if there's an, if if there aren't problems that cause um, if there aren't problems that cause ailments that society can accommodate or won't accommodate, then we might not really have jobs. Uh, so therein, you know, we're part of this healthcare system that kind of just we we don't necessarily heal per se. We we put bandages on things, but we're not actually like getting to the root cause of things um, and therefore perpetuating things like ableism. Um, I don't know. It's, it's an issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's a catch 22. I've, I've heard other people um, even on this podcast talk about like, how do you work in this space, but then like do the work to begin unwinding what's happening or dismantling what's happening um, it's tricky. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Tim Hines hosts a great podcast called the Marketing Starter Podcast. Tim, tell these fine folks what they're going to get when they listen. They're going to get great insights on how marketers can take an entrepreneurial attitude to what they do in marketing to be a little bit more successful. So I interview top marketers from all around the world and heck, even some that are bottom and middle. It's really about marketers who embody the entrepreneurial spirit to be the best that they can be. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? They can, of course, subscribe on marketingpodcast.net, but they can also search for the show on all their favorite podcasting platforms, as well as visiting my website, which is tnhines.com slash podcast. You heard him. Go subscribe. Tricky is a good word. That's a, well, to minimize uh, everything you just said. Tricky is like, that's a very good word. I had a guest on for last week's episode or two weeks ago, Elizabeth McCorvey talking about the mental health industrial complex and the complexity of working in this profession while also acknowledging that this profession is doing a significant amount of harm and perpetuating these struggle areas of so many people because this is, this is the best we've got. Like you said, mm-hmm. they fixes in a lot of ways. Like, Am I going to say therapy is not useful? No, I, I get a lot out of it. I know lots of people who, who get a lot out of it, but 50 minutes a week or every other week to talk for 50 minutes and then you know go back into society where all these problems still exist and these lack of accommodations or supports, it, it doesn't, the, the problem will never resolve itself because you're constantly being thrown back into a world of trauma and chaos and and alienation and discrimination and we know that communities are healing yet our community in my opinion our communities often in this country feel very fragmented and disjointed and 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 isolated and separate definitely um it's it's a growing concern um especially with expansion um in the u.s we're expanding outward um there are a lot of complaints with expanding upward, you know, in, in more urban areas, but the challenges with expanding outward are problematic for loneliness. We're seeing increased loneliness because we are increasing, increasingly in suburbia. Um, and so we're more separate. We're, we're not, um, we don't have spaces where we're communing together. And so, um, it, it's definitely an issue. I think the reason the reason that I chose marriage and family therapy out of all the licensed types is because it aligned most with my value system. 
of um, of relationship. It's relationship that heals. Um, the greatest trauma happens in the context of relationship, but so does the greatest healing. So if if um, if you want, in my opinion, I knew I wanted a practice that focused on addressing um, trauma in black and brown families. And I knew that um, black and brown folks tend to be more collectivist. We tend to have uh, a stronger attachment to um, community as an ideal. And so marriage and family therapy is well aligned best with that. And so that's why I chose it. That's why my practice is a family therapy practice. Um, it's why we embody systemic therapy, systemic systemic approaches in all that we do, even in our consulting um, that we do. So it's not that therapy and, and mental health can't uh, embrace community. Um, it's why marriage and family therapy began because everyone else was doing this one thing and we were like, no, that's not working. That's not going to get us anywhere. Um, so it's not that we can't. Um, it's it's such a mental shift. It's such a, such a big lift. Um, it's a big lift even for us as MFTs where we're trained to be this way and yet we, it gets pulled out of us once we get back into the workforce that doesn't operate that way. Um, so um, there are communities, there are cultures who um, don't approach ability and disability the same way as the global North. Um, and we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot from the way that other people commune with one another, the way that other people operate in their in their families and in their towns and and the way that they build their laws and, and things like that. Um, but we just have to we just have to look around. We have to know what's going on. Um, be cultural anthropologists, if you will, um, and infuse those things into the way that we do our work. Yeah, I love that. I couldn't say it better myself. I think that's why I have some like I've talked about having like I have the privilege to have traveled quite a bit over the last couple of years. And I think there's always a grief process when you go to other countries and, and kind of see how communities come together and spend time outdoors and spend time eating meals together and they, they support one another. And then I have this grief when I'm like, why, why can't we do that? Like, clearly this is not a, a, a global problem. Like this is, this is an us issue. So that's always a struggle for me emotionally to just conceptualize and, and understand that life could definitely be very different if we kind of had different value systems in, in place here. And, you know, we live in a capitalist society that's found, founded on supremacy culture and ableism and, and grind and hustle. Yes, yes. Oh, speaking of grind and hustle and ableism and the, the supposed oxymoron of that, I can't tell you how many times I get I get on uh, you know I'm speaking somewhere I'm on a podcast like this or or what have you and people ask it, inevitably the question comes up how do you do it all um, because I am disabled um, in in multiple ways uh, physically and and mentally and somehow or another we've got in our minds that disabled means unable. And 
it doesn't mean that at all. It means you have to, if if anything, it means innovative. It means you you figure out ways to do things uh, differently. Or you figure out how to be efficient. Um, you um, you prioritize better because you have to. It's not a matter of if you want to prioritize. It's it's if you don't prioritize, then you're going to be laid up in the bed for a week. Uh, so you, you got to figure out like how you're going to do this thing. Um, and um, I don't know, it, being, being a part of the disability community helps you to see just how uh, just how powerful disabled folks are. Um, and we say this all the time in, in mental health in general, right? We talk, uh, if you sit around with a group of colleagues and you're talking about how much of a privilege it, it, it is to sit and watch and participate in your client's growth and seeing how they manage and overcome challenges in their lives. And it's, it's a marvel. Like it, to me, when I sit and I, and I watch clients do some of the things that they do and, and come to the conclusions that they come to, and I'm like, my gosh, like I need to write that down. <laughs> um, and, and I talk about, uh, I have a book chapter coming out on how to be an anti-ableist clinician. It's coming out later on this summer in a, uh, in a, um, in a book for mental health professionals on anti-Blackness. And so my chapter is on um, anti-Blackness and disability. And so um, I talk about uh, this story as a culmination of a couple of clients that I put together for, for this. Um, but I talk about this story about a client who um, they experienced this trauma at work uh, where someone attacked them. And because they had a history of trauma, they had undiagnosed PTSD. You know, they got the PTSD diagnosis when they came. Um, it it triggered them to the point where they couldn't return to the work to the workplace. And they managed to fight with their employer. It took them three years to fight with their employer to get um, to get uh, what do you call it? They got awarded compensation for damages because their employer just let them go when they should have followed the law, the ADA law, which provides uh, accommodation for folks who have something like PTSD. But this person went through homelessness in that time period. This person went through um, loss and grief in their own family. They had children, you know, so it's like, there are people who are going through these processes um, and they're going through it because of the, our ableist society. And so then like, what are we, what are we doing as therapists to, um, to support that, that work that they're doing? And if we're not actively naming it, if we're not actively pointing it out, giving appropriate guidance, um, we're hindering that there is no like in between where you're, there's no neutral in oppression. <laughs> so if you're not actively doing something to, to um, be anti-ableist, then you're just allowing ableism to just kind of go along in its flow that as it exists. Um, and for our clients, we're doing, we're doing a, a disservice if we do that. It's powerful. And it's, 
it's great to highlight that that stuff is happening because I think until you are some for some people that until you're really aware of this or you're really in contact with situations that are are that emotionally um, impactful you don't really you sweep it under the rug almost as if like this is just a buzzword or like this is just being um what's the word i'm looking for this is just exacerbated or like this is being blown out of proportion and a lot of helpers are really guilty of of being very performative and not actually putting into action the things that they talk about and preach and that's a lot of the times if you're like i'm an anti-oppressive practice owner or i'm an anti-ableist practice owner or i'm pro blm or i'm pro whatever but then you're not doing anything to actually further knowledge and understanding and and ally with a community at large and i think that's problematic as well and we could probably have a whole episode on that but yes what i like that you're saying is this stuff is this is real and you know i appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable enough to do so. And I think that one thing that stands out to me is just what you said, like, how do I do it all? And what you mentioned is spot on because I myself am disabled. Um, I mean, autism is a lifelong disabling condition. It is. And behind the scenes, it is. But to people who don't know what goes on behind the scenes it's like how do you put out so much how do you create so much how did you and i love that you name like you're basically almost creating unfortunately out of necessity your own accommodation practices for self-preservation because it's the only fucking way that it will get done and it is the only way that you can do it yes yes i i um i've said this many times over the past year or two I think um, neurodivergent folk make excellent leaders. Most of the time, it's because of that. It's because we are uh, we are so um, we experience so much discrimination in the world that we we recognize at an early age. I knew I knew already at twelve and thirteen, like I had to own my own business. I already knew. And it wasn't a matter of like, oh, you know, I um I want to be an entrepreneur. Like, eh. but no, like I want to own my own business so that I can like make my life work. Because me going to school every day, I know that I have to put on this mask and try to function in order to like get by and I'm getting by because I'm highly intelligent and twice exceptional, but the other exceptionality of me is not being addressed at all. Everybody just sees how highly intelligent I am. So I'm just going to ride that wave and I'm going to be super smart and I'm going to be top of my class or second in my class or whatever. And I'm going to get accepted to a great university and I'm going to do all those things, but I'm going to just kind of like, not deal with this whole other side of me, which, which is this, it's this, it's a disembodiment that's happening. Um, And it happens for a a lot of us who grew up disabled, particularly neurodivergent or have an invisible disability um, where it could be masked, where people don't have to necessarily know. Um, And we develop all these issues because of it that we have to like deal with when we get older whether they're physical or mental or both um, and unlearning and uh, all the things, but like, think about 
the the type of human that has gone through that process, the 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 ability and the fortitude that that human has that other people don't know anything about because they didn't have to do any of that stuff and then be a black or brown person on top of that. That's why black that's why black women are out here winning in business right now because you know there's something to be said about having to have gone through life. Um, with with uh, a degree of challenge that other people didn't have to, and you developed grit that other people don't have, um, and developed the ability to innovate that other people don't have, as far as the way that they've experienced the world. Um, and right now, the world is uh, we're we're living in a in a um, in a business climate where um, showing up as different is the thing. Um, you're, you're going to excel when you have um, innovation or um, or perspective that's very different from other people. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how I got off on all that either, but that's my business side coming out. <laughs> I think it's perfectly said. I think it's perfectly said in alignment with what we're talking about and acknowledgement that if you've grown up and had to struggle and had to pivot and had to look at the world differently and had to constantly be on, on the defense, having to constantly figure out alternative solutions to every single scenario, it is hella exhausting. It's also unbelievably helpful in entrepreneurship because the creativity and the way that your brain is able to just see things in so many different outcomes and lenses really lends itself to being able to, like you said, show up and be innovative, show up and be creative, make something that works for you. And I think that's what entrepreneurship is, is, is filling a void that you need and mm-hmm. making work that works for your system and your ability to, to show up every day. So could not have said that better myself. And I appreciate you going off on that tangent. So <laughs> I think that's a good um, a good end point for us because I think that is really something to digest as you're sitting here listening and thinking about what Janelle just offered. And really this whole conversation has been because you can have so many spinoff conversations from this topic. And I think this is a really important topic to continue to talk about. And I'll DM you, but I, I would love to have you on our other podcast about uh, all about neurodivergence. And I think it would be a, a cool yeah. spinoff for that too. Sure. Um, but yeah, to everyone listening, I think this is something to continue to really think and expand upon because this is something that if you are a mental health professional, you're either a part of perpetuating or you're a part of the suffering while also perpetuating in some ways. So like, it's very complicated. And there's a lot to unpack and unlearn. And I think that we can do ourselves a big service if we start to step back and really absorb a lot of what Janelle just talked about during this conversation. So I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing some of your own story and being really authentic. That's what we appreciate here. And I really do appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Um, I, I appreciate you inviting me and, um, and, and I 100% agree with you that the discussion on ableism is something that um, we'll be reckoning with for many, many years to come. And there will be new iterations of it um, 
in the coming years. And it's, and it's vital. It's vital for us to recognize, um, even from an ethical standpoint, our, our ethics require us to be anti-ableist. It's, you know, it's, it's stuff that we just, we just haven't ever explicitly named, uh, and, and recognize the impact of choosing anti-ableism or not choosing it, um, or being indifferent to it. We haven't really just sat down and named it, discussed it, dis- um, uh, divulged ways to become anti-ableist, um, in, in, in practice, uh, with your, with your clients and also in business, um, and managing your practice itself, um, and how you build it, st- the structures, um, how, if you're going to be a group practice owner, this is ex- especially important because you're going to be thinking about how to create an environment that's anti-ableist for clinicians that you hire. Um, so there's a lot to it. Um, and, and, I'm happy to work with you if you're interested in me coming to speak or um, coming to provide consulting. Um, me and a couple of other folks in my practice, we do this consulting for folks nationwide. So if you want to reach out to us, please do. Um, I guess I can go ahead and say where. <laughs> please reach out to us at uh, bridgesflc.com. Um, click on the orange Let's Connect button. And um, you can also reach us um, on social media, we're um, at Bridges FLC on Insta, uh, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And my um, my professional um, handle is the Family Fanatic, and that's on LinkedIn and Facebook and Insta. Awesome! And all of that information will be in the show notes, so that you have easy access to access all of what Janelle just mentioned. I and just really, really incredible stuff. We can have you back on and honestly talk about strategies and and tips to ensure that you're creating an anti-ableist practice setup and, and business structure. So thank you so much again for making the time and sharing all this wonderful information with everyone out there. To everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast, all episodes are out every single week on all major platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. You can follow All Things Private Practice on Insta. Doubt yourself, do it anyway, and we'll see you next week. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Tim Hines hosts a great podcast called the Marketing Starter Podcast. Tim, tell these fine folks what they're going to get when they listen. They're going to get great insights on how marketers can take an entrepreneurial attitude to what they do in marketing to be a little bit more successful. So I interview top marketers from all around the world and heck, even some that are bottom and middle. It's really about marketers who embody the entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit to be the best that they can be. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? They can, of course, subscribe on marketingpodcast.net, but they can also search for the show on all their favorite podcasting platforms, as well as visiting my website, which is tnhines.com slash podcast. You heard him. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.